This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Proof of spiritual phenomena coming down in three, two, and one. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to Strange Planet. On this episode, a scientist's transformation from diehard materialist and skeptic to open-minded believer in spirituality and anomalous phenomena. Fully indoctrinated into the cult of science, neuroscientist Mona Sobani, PhD, aggressively defended the dogma of scientific benefits, or beliefs rather, beliefs until a series of life-altering events caused her to reconsider spirituality and PSI concepts and launched her into a two-year investigation into the ineffable mysteries of the world. Mona Sabani is a cognitive neuroscientist and author and entrepreneur, a former research scientist at the University of Southern California. She holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She is the author of Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Mona, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Um, let's begin at the beginning, I guess, in terms of what, um, what led you into this, this field. Was, what, what triggered your interest in spirituality? Yeah, I was never interested in anything spiritual or religious. I didn't really have a need for it, I thought. Um, and I was, as you mentioned in your intro, uh, just a very serious scientist. And I I think it, I hit this point in my life when I kind of had this existential crisis. Um, and I think that I 
started leaning on some of the more traditional um, things from my heritage. I'm Persian. So my parents are from Iran and um, which has been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> um, but um, so, yeah, so they, I think in this time, I think I've, I grew up, I was born in the U S and I grew up here. So I adopted uh, a lot of Western culture values and whatnot, but I think in this kind of time of crisis, um, we have this tradition in our culture where we use, it's called divination. I didn't even know what it was called or what it was at the time, but it's basically, um, somebody in my case, it was my mother who learned it from her mother, um, has the skill. Someone has the skill to kind of look at something. It could be tarot cards. It could be coffee grounds. It could be anything to kind of divine information, about a person's life. And my mom would do this for other people using coffee grounds, um, not the American coffee grounds. It's like this thicker Turkish, Armenian, Greek kind of coffee that we have, um, which is kind of like akin to tea leaf reading. I think people are more familiar with that. Yeah. Um, so she used to do this for our family friends and it was always in the background of our parties. But when I, she started doing it for me, she's uh, when I was in graduate school and I didn't pay too much attention. I kind of just took notes, was curious. I noticed that what more of what, like she was more right than she was wrong about predictions. Like if she would say something about the future, she would usually be more right than she was wrong. And that got my attention. And so, I mean, I didn't, you know, investigate this like fully over the years. I just kind of took notes and observed and was like, well, this is really weird. I can't explain it with my science. Um, but you know, I, it works. So in my time of crisis, um, it's kind of like times of, you know, uncertainty or you're looking for meaning and purpose. Like why, why are we here? I guess I had never thought about that before. <laughs> Suddenly I was thinking about it and, uh, I started to, you know, turn to my mom for that. And it was because I had these two hugely emotional life events that threw me into crisis. I mean, I'm sure it was a number of other, you know, lots of factors. They all, it was like the perfect storm of things happening at once. Um, and I turned my attention to this art of divination that was part of my cultural heritage more seriously. So, and kind of started thinking about it and thinking, um, so for example, one of the events was my mom basically predicted that somebody was going to pass away. And it was somebody who I knew who was killed. Um, and so because it was life or death, um, I started to wonder, you know, was it fate or destiny? Do those things exist? Um, like I'd never thought, never thought about that before because I didn't think that it was possible that that could be true. Um, but then I started thinking about that. And I'm like, well, if she, you know, could see this weeks in advance of this event happening, what does that mean? mean like it was written you know into the fabric of the universe or forever or did something change you know and how could we have information ahead of the event does time not work the way that we think it does um and then i so i started to feel you know uneasy too because then my understanding of reality was flipped upside down and i had nothing to to rely on um so I did what I'm trained to do, which is to research and ask questions and be curious and, you know, interview people and listen and read and think. And that's what I started doing because I didn't know what else to do. Right. So you started speaking with mediums and psychics and, um, uh, yeah. 
and also people from scientific backgrounds, behavioral health practitioners, scientists. Can you share maybe um, yeah. some of the, the the more fascinating takeaways you learned from those interviews? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, because my the way into this was through divination um, or intuition, intuitive skills, whatever you want to call it. I started there and was curious about other people's skills. So my friends and I started going to see intuitives or better known as psychics to kind of see, are they total frauds? Like everyone says they are, or is there something there? Um, and we did like fun pseudo experiment for ourselves. We would go a few times, different readers, same reader, different times we'd swap readings. And, you know, eventually we figured out there's a lot of factors that influence things, but when they're right, um, they're right on multiple variables and the odds of when they're right and how they're right, uh, were just, you know, way above what I, what I would expect if it was random chance. So, um, I started interviewing them because as a neuroscientist, I was interested. First of all, I thought no one had studied this. I was like, there's no way anyone has ever studied intuitives because no one takes them seriously in this Western in Western society. So I thought nobody had studied them. So I just started interviewing the ones I had met and kind of asking them, like, well, what does it feel like? Um, do you go into another kind of state? Do you actually, when you say you see things, are you seeing it with your eyes or is it in your mind? Um, you know, it's those kinds of questions. And I was surprised to learn what I was mostly surprised by was that they, they all had, well, the ones I spoke to, they all had very similar beliefs, um, which was they believed that we reincarnate, that we come to learn lessons um, for our souls to evolve. And so then I wondered if they had all gone to like psychic school or something. Uh, I didn't know anything about this world. Like I was like, are they credentialed? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. They, am I, they're probably not tested. Otherwise people would trust them more. Um, and, you know, I, so I kind of, <laughs> I was surprised to learn they, that they don't, a lot of them, you know, were like, no, I was born with this gift. I started when I was a kid. My family is not spiritual. My family doesn't believe me. Um, it, you know, and it was sad because a lot of them, were like, I know this is my calling. I just want to help people heal. And then, you know, the society treats them like they're frauds. So I felt really bad for them actually, um, as I got to know them better because it did feel like they were doing it because they felt like they're supposed to be doing it. They loved doing it. Um, but they didn't like go to school or get certified or anything. And they didn't grow up in this environment per se. So it was a choice they made. And, um, one that they thought they should be doing and it wasn't always rewarded. And then after speaking to them, I started speaking, I started, I was having multiple crises at once. Okay. <laughs> one was existential. Then one was an identity crisis because I felt like a science fraud speaking to intuitives. So then I started interviewing my, my scientist colleagues to get an idea for, you know, have, have you ever thought about spirituality? Are you religious? We had never talked about these things um, with each other despite the fact I had known most of them for over a decade. So I started just, you know, asking them, like, do you believe that we may not know everything, that time doesn't work the way we think that it does, you know, and all of them were very open-minded. I mean, they were, I think each of them was more open-minded about certain topics, <laughs> like each of them had their own, but they were all ready to admit that we don't know everything in fact, when you usually, when you get a, usually when you get a PhD in, in any kind of science, you come away 
understanding like the extreme limitations of, of what science can tell you. And it's what frustrates the public when scientists try to discuss their studies because we'll be like, well, under you know, it's like under these very specific set of conditions, you know, X, Y, and Z is true. But, and it's, we never prove anything. We just say things are likely to be true. And that frustrates everybody, but that is the nature of science. So, um, so yeah, so I had these fun conversations with my scientist colleagues who were like, they were all into this. Some of them went to, into neuroscience because they were interested in philosophy. They loved paranormal stuff. They were like, yeah, weird stuff happens all the time that we can't explain. So it was really comforting, um, first and foremost, I think, to you realize- yeah, that I wasn't alone and um, that it was perfectly normal to wonder about the mysteries of the universe. Um, so that was nice. And then I started reaching out to, I found out that there actually had been research done on intuitives and psychic abilities. And so that led me down a whole path of reading those papers and those um, books and then reaching out to the to the scientists themselves who had done some of those studies. And then they gave me more and more references. And so this turned into more of a, like it was supposed to be a fun interview pers personal project just for me right. to find the answers to the universe and calm, calm myself down. But then it turned into like an actual reading research project. I, I started digging in and, and then, cause I found that the evidence was pretty strong for some of this stuff. So I was really surprised that more of us, you know, in the mainstream science world didn't know about them. Right. During your research and your travels, did you encounter the work of Dr. Russell Targ from the Stanford Research Institute? Yes. Yeah. So um, I never spoke to to, Russ, to Dr. Targ, but I spoke to Hal Putoff and Edward May, who were mm. the other two physicists involved in the psychic psi phenomena or whatever research at SRI. Um, yeah, they were extremely helpful. And it's interesting. They both have different perspectives on what could be going on, but they had incredible stories to share. <laughs> so yeah. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Dr. Targ a couple times and, and speaking with him. And, and, um, he often, he liked to say that there is more proof for psychic, uh, ability than there is that bear cures headaches. What do you think of that statement? Do you agree? Yeah. Um, that's, I know exactly what statistic he's talking about. I think I actually put it in my book. Um, yeah. So I, when I went to write the book, I wanted to, a lot of the things that I read were citing each other or like the same old sources. And so um, I went to the literature actually to, to do a similar analysis of what he's saying. He, what he's, what he's referring to is that the effect size, like how <clears throat> the effect size of psychic phenomena is, is higher than that of, of aspirin. Um, so I went to the literature to, cause there's been a recent like review published about a lot of these studies, so prints their effect sizes. So I went to the literature to find um, effect sizes for other things like um, drugs, pharmaceutical drugs for depression, for diabetes, um, for blood pressure, whatever, all these various ones. And I found for most of them, um, and it depends on the, the psychic, the exact phenomena you're looking at, but that, yeah, for they were either as high or higher or slightly lower than a lot of drugs that we you know, are approved for clinical efficacy that the general public uses. So, and I always say, um, there's been another analysis done for neuroscience and psychological research. And it shows that like, if you, you can always disprove a study, like you could find something wrong with any study. Um, 
And the same is true for psychic phenomena studies, but you you can get fancy with the statistics. But there was this analysis I read that said, and it's true, if you do that and you throw out those results, then you have to throw out a lot of other results from the neuroscience and psychology literature because they don't reach those standards either. So, um, so it's a tricky, I mean, it's a really weird situation that they use very similar protocols that we use in some psychology and neuroscience studies, um, you know, and same statistical analyses. And so they're, they're pretty comparable. It's just that we don't have um, an explanatory mechanism. Like we can't explain it with Newtonian physics. So that's why it's ignored. So you mentioned you had this identity crisis as you're exploring the paranormal and uh, unexplained phenomena and, and psychic abilities and so forth as a, as a cognitive neuroscientist. I mean, was that intensifying the more that you learned about the evidence for things like psychic ability? Did that cause cognitive dissonance for a cognitive neuroscientist? And, and uh, how did you deal with that? Yeah. Yep. That's what I... That's some of what I write about in the book actually is I wanted to, there were a lot, I read a lot of books about the evidence. There were so many books about the evidence. There's no shortage of books and papers about the evidence. So um, when I thought about, you know, in the end, should I write a book or not? Or what's interesting about my journey? I mean, for me, it was that I really was not likely to go through this, um, you know, by like, if you, you wouldn't have been able to guess this beforehand. And I think that I think that the the difficulty of that journey is kind of what's interesting because it was really hard for me. And and I think that some of us maybe I don't know. I don't know what the general consensus is in the public about how easy or hard it is to change beliefs, but I think we think it's pretty hard and it is pretty hard. But <laughs> I I also think that we think that if we're presented with the right evidence that we will change our minds and um, I wanted to tell people that that's true, but it's really hard, <laughs> really, really hard. So like when I read the scientific studies, which are in the language that I understand, right? I'm a scientist. I need scientific evidence. I want effect sizes. I want to know the, the P values, even though I have those papers, it was still hard for me. And it was still, and even though I had personal experience, right? I had all these readings, my mother, I was still it was still difficult to say I believed it out loud, to actually believe it. Like I would wake up every morning and think to myself, you've been fooled. You're stupid. You missed something. You you didn't scrutinize the studies well enough. Um, you misinterpreted all those readings. You, you created meaning out of them because you wanted to, because these are all the narratives they teach you when you train to be a scientist. So right. confirmation bias and- Yes, confirmation like bias, yeah. Mm -hmm. So those kept coming up. I mean, it took, and I should have known this, like as a neuroscientist, I know it takes a long time to rewire your brain. It takes a long time to overcome beliefs, to change behavior. It's not overnight. It rarely ever is. Um, it's it's like the rarest of behavioral change techniques can can change you overnight. Like Self-preservation because you had invested so much of your life in this, you know, the study of neuroscience and, and you are a scientist. Uh, yes. So yeah. for that, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, um, it, it's self-preservation, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It took me a while to realize that <laughs> probably because I was just spinning around in circles, but 
Yes. Eventually I realized it's because, well, and someone had to tell me <laughs> I met this um, psychologist and I was like, just tell me what's wrong with me. Um, and he was like, it's because it's your identity and you've tied your value, your, you know, how valuable you think you are to your identity. And for whatever reason you think that, you know, being a scientist makes you valuable and your self-worth is tied to it. And so if you're, and he's like, and for another, for some other reason, you think that like believing in this stuff or believing in spirituality makes you not a scientist. And so it, he kind of laid out the beliefs for me so I could go tackle each one. <laughs> so I had to go, yeah, kind of investigate each one of those. Uh, Mona, we're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. And I want to find out at what po point, uh, if there was a, a moment, a, I don't know, a piece of data, a piece of evidence where you started to move away uh, or maybe completely broke loose from this idea of a random, meaningless universe to one that has uh, inherent meaning and uh, a, a mystical, spiritual dimension. Back with more right here on Strange Planet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Mona Sabani, cognitive neuroscientist and the author of Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe and that little stinger coming back, redefining reality. I guess that's what you had to do. Um, but when was there a, a, an aha moment when you decided the universe is not uh, random, it's not meaningless, it has inherent meaning? Yeah, um, it took a while. I mean, I would say that, I, I write this, it's like a fun anecdote in the book, but I do think it was a turning point for me, as weird as it sounds. Like, even though I had read all this evidence and had all these other personal experiences, um, there was, the, I was, I have always meditated, but for many years, even before this journey, um, but one morning in meditation, or I was learning through the spirituality things, the things I was reading that you could ask the universe for the, a sign. So I, um, 
I had been asking, but I would keep forgetting the sign that I chose because I wasn't used to doing this. So one morning I thought, okay, like it was one of those points where I was like, I'm really going to dig into this, like even further, like it was a commitment point, a decision point for me. And I thought I, in meditation, I asked the universe, okay, if, um, if I'm supposed to go down this road, um, you need to give me a sign and it needs to be a really big sign. I'm not going to choose it since I forget, like I can't, and I can't think of what a big sign would be. It has to be something that I can't miss. And that is obviously meaningful to me and obviously meaningful to this journey. And so two nights later, uh, we didn't, I didn't tell this story, but in some roundabout random way, um, Chelsea Handler had a book and a podcast. And then in her podcast, she interviewed Laurel and Jackson, a psychic medium. And I heard that interview. It's like the podcast interview that changed my life um, before all of the actual like research started before my project started. This was totally random before I was listening to anything spiritual or reading anything spiritual. Um, I heard that podcast interview and it got me interested and it got me thinking more deeply about <clears throat> the spiritual framework that psychics and intuitives believe in and whether it's true or not. And so fast forward back to my asking the universe for a sign. Two nights later, after I asked in my meditation, I was going to a friend's birthday dinner in Santa Monica in, in LA. And um, I was in an Uber on the way over and my friends called me and they're like, where are you? Are you far from the restaurant? Like, when are you going to get here? I was like, well, I'm like five minutes away, guys, calm down. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like you have to get here right now. You're never going to believe who's here. Um, Chelsea Handler. <laughs> Chelsea Handler was at dinner. And so I got there and she was there with like her friends and family. And I was just into, I was like mentally not present at dinner at all because I was just staring at her table like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. But it was the, there was so much meaning in that moment for me. Like it felt like, the universe was talking to me, you know, and yes, I live in LA, but I've never seen Chelsea Handler, you know, like the timing of it was so incredible. It was, yeah, it was crazy. So that one really shook me. I mean, I don't think I even told my friends that night. Cause I was too, I was processing. I was like, what's happening. This is so weird. <laughs> like, did the universe actually hear me and give me a sign? <laughs> like, does this mean I have to keep going down this road? So it was, it was really interesting. Um, but yeah, and I just, and then I thought, well, these are the, these are the moments. These are the moments that make life. So, um, you know, we, we've known what, 80, 80, 90 years. I mean, they've just, they've studied particles in a, in a lab and they realized, scientists realized that, you know, they, a particle has locality and it can be measured, you know, when it's being observed and when it's not being observed, it behaves like a wave and exists in this kind of an infinite field of potentiality. And um, I mean, what, as a scientist, I mean, we've known this, but we've never sort of taken it to the next step. You know, what, what, what are the implications of that? I mean, we're particles. So we only have locality and can be measured when we're being observed. And so what is, I know it's a, it's a big question, but you know, what do we make of all that? Yeah. Um, the problem is that, and I think this is hope maybe changing a little, but part of the problem is that that's quantum, what you're talking about is quantum physics. And then the rest of what we base a lot of our 
technology and a world on is Newtonian physics. And there are two different scales. So like Newtonian physics is, you know, we can, I can drop a ball, it'll fall to the ground. That's gravity. You know, we can measure mass. And then quantum is, it's such smaller scale. Um, and I'm just, it requires very specific conditions that normally are not your everyday, like they usually require, um, very cold temperatures. So not temperatures that you find like in your normal everyday thing. So these two actually like theoretically, I'm sure, you know, and a lot of your listeners know, but they're in, not that they're incompatible with each other, but nobody has, has bridged these two fields together yet. Like everyone's looking for the theory of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we've just tended to focus more on Newtonian physics because it's been the most useful to us. Um, and we, because we have been able to bridge quantum, I think people don't bother to, to, and anytime anyone uses that as an explanation for anything, people would be like, well, you know, quantum physics doesn't scale or whatever. But I will say there is a field called quantum biology, which is starting to look at these processes in natural systems. And for example, in birds, they use, um, some sort of quantum mechanism that allows them to actually see the earth's magnetic field. And that's how they can fly in certain directions. And I know there's a few other examples. I actually put them in my book because I was really interested in them. Um, but so I think there's this emerging field of quantum biology that's starting to show that like these processes are not, um, you know, only uh, likely to happen under extremely cold <laughs> or whatever, isolated laboratory conditions that they happen in all the time in natural systems. So maybe it'll become more acceptable, but I hear you. I was thinking about that the other day because like a lot of people like to dismiss um, people who extrapolate the theory up, but it's not, it's not, I don't think it's a huge leap to do that personally. Well, that got me to thinking, you know, the, the Schrodinger cat, are we are we all Schrodinger cats? You know, we're, yeah. we're both living and dead. And what does then that mean about physical death? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we don't know. <laughs> but I agree. Not. People should be, we should be studying it more and trying to bridge the two fields together and looking at different kinds of evidence from human experience and other fields of knowledge instead of just physics, I think could help explain a lot. Well, what what are the implications when uh, of the scientific materialist paradigm ignoring this spiritual dimension to the universe? Yeah, I I was reading about. Um, I mean, there's there's many right. If we don't understand our reality fully, then how can we engage with it in the most optimal way? We can't if we don't understand it, right? Um, if there are certain, you know, laws and principles and forces that we could be, be in better alignment with or leverage better, but we just don't know about them because whatever, they don't align with materialism, you know, then we're missing out. I think also um, when it comes to the issue, I was reading about this and so I'll just say it, but I don't, I didn't think of this on my own. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to the issue of survival um, of whether your consciousness survives death or not. I think that um, people who believe in that, you know, approach death in a very different way. And I think Western culture is very ashamed and frightened of death. And even though it's a very basic part of life, um, it's kind of like 
severed from us and looked at with fear, um, which is a terrible way to live. <laughs> so yes, yes, it, it wasn't always that way in the West. I mean, you know, we used to have a, a front parlor. That's where right. funerals were held, and yeah. you know, people would help prepare the body. I mean, that still exists, obviously, in in the east in the east. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, we, we've, like so many aspects of society, we've sort of farmed that off and it's yeah. now a very antiseptic kind of, um, yeah, it's it's very cold and, and uh, you're right, we fear death. It's yeah. it can be a beautiful thing as well. Yeah, and I, I think that if, you know, I mean, yeah, we don't even have to believe in survival. We could we could just begin with starting to accept it and incorporating into our culture more. But I do think that there's some, you know, I don't think there's hardcore evidence for survival, but I think there's enough to get curious. And anyway, that's what most spirituality and religion is about. Any, It's about faith. So I think that, um, but having a belief though in survival, it provides a lot of comfort. And I think there's been studies that show this. Um, and especially um, definitely with the psychedelic studies or any kind of mystical experience that people have where they experience becoming one with the universe and they say like, I feel like I know what it is to die and I'm not afraid anymore. Um, that is extremely powerful, but not only that, it, it has measurable effects on the change in behavior. It changes people's personalities. It changes their behavior. It changes their outlooks on life, their well-being. These are all metrics we measure in the lab and it, they improve on all of those things. So I think, um, I think it has very measurable <laughs> benefits to, yeah, to, to think about these things and to believe in something and, and not be so afraid. Let me ask you a, a big balloon question. And that is, you know, as a cognitive neuroscientist now, where do you think the mind originates? Yeah. I mean, I don't have an answer for that, but I will tell you that since this journey started for me, that I realized in graduate school, um, in a neuroscience training program, we never talk about the mind. We only learn about the brain. And it wasn't until this journey where I suddenly was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, you know, in fact, we actually look down on psychology sometimes in neuroscience. And now that I'm on the other side of this, I'm thinking that's ridiculous. Like we keep saying the mind arises from the brain, but we don't even bother to tie in all the the literature on that. And there's been a lot, you know, there's been a lot of psychology and psychiatry and a lot of case studies and a lot of interesting things that we never look at in neuroscience. And I think, I honestly think it's a tragedy. Like, and I think they need to change it immediately <laughs> because it's dumb, but I, I do think it's, and the reason I'm bringing that up is just because as I've been doing reading about you know, from the 1800s and 1900s, all these great thinkers who have been thinking about mind versus brain and consciousness and all of these things. There's a lot of interesting questions. No one has the answer, but there's a lot of interesting questions that we should be thinking about more seriously, because I, I think that I just think modern day neuroscience tends to look at the mind as like a nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> nuisance. <laughs> like this is an annoying thing we have to explain if someone asks, but that's not what's really important. You know, what's really important is, you know, how your eyes perceive and how your brain translates it into a picture <laughs> or whatever. The questions are always more important, I think, than the answers often. Yeah. We'll uh, take another time out. Stay with us.
truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we are back with Mona Sobani, PhD, cognitive neuroscientist and author of Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Um, so where are you now then as a, as a cognitive neuroscientist? Uh, I mean, once you've gone down this rabbit hole, as they say, uh, you know, nothing is ever the same. You can't really come back as the same person. So how do you approach cognitive neuroscience now as someone who has, you know, dipped a toe into, uh, spirituality? Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't doing, um, I used to do neuroimaging work. So, um, brain scans, and I haven't been doing that work for many years anyway, because I had already become sort of disenchanted with the limits of that method anyway. So I was working in a different kind of research, but, um, and since then I've, I've, I've moved away from doing the actual research myself and into consulting for people who do it, <laughs> but I do. And it is interesting to go back into the literature. I mean, I'm one of those people who's always thinking about how we can do things better. So now that I have this knowledge, when I go in and I read normal mainstream neuroscience papers, I'm always thinking about all the things that are missing from the paper in the introduction and, um, all, you know, like all the fields of knowledge that haven't been consulted, um, all the psychology questions that are not being incorporated into this exploration. So it's, it is difficult even from just a purely, like not even an esoteric standpoint, like just from a purely um, place of we need to expand and improve neuroscience from that place, it's already difficult, but then also bringing, yeah, bringing in the spirituality and all the other things that I've learned. It is you have to turn that, I have to turn it off to do my work because I can't, it's, um, it's, it just interferes it, uh, because I just get angry. <laughs> I'll just be like, this is only one point of view. Why don't they just, you know, mention that? Like there should be an, a, some, like a statement at the top that says assumption, this is through a materialist worldview, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. So there's, yeah, it's a, it's a little difficult, but I also understand that, I'm also one of those people that's like, I understand that this is where we are and you have to start where you are. And so, you know, how do we go from where we are to where we should be? So. Uh, I think I'm remembering this correctly, what you said earlier. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think you said that there's not enough, you know, hard evidence uh, yet to prove that consciousness survives death. Do I have that correctly first before I proceed? Yeah, I mean, I would also say I'm not an expert in the survival liter literature, but from what I've read, there's like a debate between whether it's uh, consciousness is surviving or if it's something called super psi, like you're getting information, but it's not necessarily coming from the survived personality. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so um, with that in mind, talk to me about the what you've read, what you've discovered regarding the, the healing uh, benefits from things like past life regression therapy. Yeah. Um, that was one of the things I encountered and loved and that kind of helped drive me down this road of exploration actually, because in addition to the philosophical questions and just like 
you know, about spirituality? Like, are there, is there other dimensions? Is there meaning to life? Um, in addition to that, along the way, I learned that a lot of these altered states of consciousness, such as past life regression or psychedelics or breath work, I found that they were extremely healing. Like there was a good amount of, you know, it may not be whatever the percentages don't matter, but there's a good amount of healing. Sorry. I'm like going to science mode with the, <laughs> like, let me tell you the effect size. Um, anyway, for all of them, there's a pretty, there's a good amount of healing above chance level for them. Um, healing like uh, emotional or interpersonal or physical issues that you have. And the range of those healings is what caught my attention, which I, th- I thought it was really interesting. And so just for example, right past life regression, you, you go into this relaxed regressed state and you retell this story basically is what you're doing. You're telling a story and you know, whatever you could be recounting the story of how a spear was thrown into your back. And then you wake up, um, and over the next day or weeks, this chronic pain that you've had in your back heals itself. I mean, that's really interesting to me. Um, but there were other, you know, emotional thing, emotional stories. And so that was one of the things actually kept drove, kept driving me back and back to this, to this entire literature, because I just thought how, weird you know because we in in more mainstream science we would i from my starting point was like that's ridiculous okay that's just placebo okay that's just an exceptional anecdote or an exceptional case but then when i dug in i found that there were thousands of these cases from multiple practitioners um and so it was like a full-blown phenomena and i just was again like what a field that neuroscience should look at because what is that telling you i mean what despite whatever's going on in the brain something's going on with the mind and in the interaction between the person and the therapist and you know or maybe you are tapping into a field and healing something energetically in your soul like who the hell knows what's going on but it's really interesting and it works more importantly so right. yeah I've, I've witnessed a number maybe a dozen past life regressions and um and i don't believe i'm not someone who believes in reincarnation uh and yet i have seen people while they're in a um in this meditative state or relaxed or hypnotic state uh start to speak in not a foreign language but a foreign accent a very credible foreign accent have knowledge of let's say the topography of a particular region in northern england the history and so forth that they didn't have well at least they claim they didn't have prior so it's there's definitely something happening there yeah there's been some there's been a few practitioners who have tried to study this in a more systematic way and they've published a few i've read some of those papers but yeah they've looked at things like that and it's like really the odds of like these number of people, like you said, having knowledge about places they've never been. Um, and some, a lot of this research was done back in like the seventies and eighties. I mean, it's still ongoing, but some of the, like the original research. And so, you know, the internet wasn't around then people didn't have as much access to information as they do now there, you know, TV had like three channels. <laughs> so right. The near-death experience. What are your thoughts? What, what, what did you What did you discover? What really maybe blew your mind with regards to NDEs? I I'm like I know so I'm not that into NDEs, but I don't know why. <laughs> they're but I do love the stories. Um, I just think they're very difficult to 
to prove, but I do love the stories where this is, this is what kills me about NDEs is people get caught up arguing about the, if the brain was flatlined, if the ox, how long that like, and all those stupid details. And it's like, we're right now we cannot say for sure when your memory happened. So it could have, you know, we can't say whether it happened and then you passed out. And then when you came back, you kept the memory. Um, those are like not interesting arguments to me, but I do think what's interesting is when people tell the story of like, not even in the operating room, but when their consciousness is somewhere else, like there, I just heard this great one. This woman was in the back seat of her sister's car and saw what she was wearing and heard her on the phone or something saying, I'm coming, hang in there. I'll be right there. And then it turns out that, that she was driving, that she got the news that her sister, um, I forget what her, what happened to her, but whatever, she had some hit by a car or something. Um, and she gets to the hospital is wearing the outfit the woman saw, um, and turns out she was on the phone with her daughter. And anyway, she, and she reported a bunch of other things that she happened to see that were not at all in the hospital. <laughs> so like those kinds of stories to me, which there are many, many, many stories like that. Those are very, very interesting to me. And people, you could bend over backwards to, um, you know, discount them, but it becomes really, but there are people who have studied this for a very long time and it just becomes really difficult to do that with every single case. So I do think there's something there. And I don't, I think if you're looking at the other types of evidence too, this is not out of line with that. If it was like a standalone thing, uh, and that's my thing with each of these. If it was a standalone thing, you could try to discount it till the day you died. But all of them together, again, it's, it's a statistical thing, right? Each one times each one times each one makes it less and less probable that they would all be true. So that's what's interesting to me. So how did this exploration change just your your day-to-day -day living? <laughs> well, I definitely take it a lot more seriously, actually, but... Also try to have more fun, I think. I think like I, my big question at the time was what is the point of life? And an answer that I came to was to enjoy life while you're here, like enjoying every moment and e enjoying emotions, even if they're negative, which admittedly is hard to do. But I uh, that significantly changed changed me. And I think the perspective again, I, you know, with spirituality and stuff, it's like, you we don't know, we just don't know what's true or not. But I do think that, that I used to think because we don't know, you shouldn't believe that's, that was my science training. And I don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> I think that you should believe in whatever will make your life experience better. I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, but, and so for me, that narrative of what if I'm here to learn lessons helped me ask in every situation, what am I supposed to be learning here? And that's a huge um, psychological reframing, a huge perspective shift. And it really helps, you know, address annoying day-to-day -day things that happen or, or even bigger life events. So for me, that's been the biggest um, shift and an extremely, extremely valuable one for me. Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Mona, how do we get a copy? Yeah, um, it's sold wherever books are sold, but you can also grab it from my website, which is monasabaniphd.com. 
Um, and I also write a psychedelics and altered states newsletter. So you can sign up for that on the website too. Fantastic. Mona, great meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.